You are invited to join the Banshees, the Werewolves, the Vampires, the Gooks, who are all coming to our Halloween convention of spooks. You'll enjoy this lively group if your blood doesn't end up in the soup. Practice your screams. Break out your shrouds. Tighten your nerves. And join the crowds at our convention of spooks. I didn't mean to startle you. Oh, it's all right. You know, it's Halloween. I guess everyone's entitled to one good scare, huh? I, I just can't take no pleasure in killing. Just some things you gotta do. Don't mean you have to like it. She just goes a little mad sometimes. We all go a little mad sometimes. Do you know what the most frightening thing in the world is? It's fear. Wait right there, Mr. Bennell. How do you know my name? I didn't tell you my name. Hang up. I didn't tell them my name. They're all a part of it. They're all pods, all of them. They mostly come at night. Mostly. I'm scared to close my eyes. I'm scared to open them. I'm going to die out of here. What do we do? Why don't we just... wait here for a little while. See what happens. Don't. Can't you feel it? It's alive. Watching. Waiting. Join us! Join us! Join us! I'm sick for fucks using one too many movies. Now, Sid, don't you blame the movies. Movies don't create psychos. Movies make psychos more creative. You let him drown. You never paid any attention. Look what you did to him. Look what you did to him. That's what I'm going to do to you now. Fair the skin from your body. Slowly. Bit by bit. Oh, oh I shall return to torment and destroy throughout the night of time. It's time for the SLS cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. And welcome, welcome one and all to the SLS cast's annual Hollywood Horror Cast. And of course, episode 203. <laughs> the Andra Empire episode of the SLS cast. Because it turns out 
that in keeping with a nice, scary, dark theme, an entire empire was broken apart into smaller and smaller independent principalities, destroying an empire, as it were, in the year 203. And so that's why I'm bringing that into this and trying to make it scarier than it really was, I'm sure. And with that wonderful little bit of half-assed 203 knowledge, I, of course, am Matt. And coming to us all the way from sunny California would be our resident Sony employee, Tim. I am Tim. Awesome. I, I think that was my Spanish version of I am Tim. Or I guess I should say, <laughs> me llamo Tim. But it, it wouldn't work because you can't see my impersonation of the Spanish guy in Spanish Dracula with my bulging eyes and three chins. Indeed. And what would become known to be the Andy Garcia hairstyle <laughs> let's not forget that so andy Ar- you wonder where andy garcia got his hairstyle it's from that <laughs> the one good thing that came out of spanish dracula that made it popular was andy garcia's hair uh, oceans 11 right. would not have been the same without spanish Actually, dracula. i was thinking godfather part three that's what i <laughs> uh but uh, oceans 11 also works as well so it's Halloween. This is the the old annual or annual Halloween episode that I look forward to every year. By this time, I oh wait wait wait. Actually, before I begin, uh, uh, and of course, I picked the worst bottle opener to open up this beer. I don't know. I kind of like the uh, you know struggling porn sounds that come from you attempting to open a beer. Where you just kind of hear this, ah, ah. I mean, I, I don't know. I think that would, you know. And if you want to make it scary instead of awkwardly sexy, you know, we could make it sound like make it like stabbing noises, like you know, you're doing something untoward with the bottle. Nope, that's still awkwardly sexy. Never mind. So, what <laughs> what kind of beer you got there? Because when I think of drinking a Blue Moon, I think of <laughs> disgruntled porn. <laughs> Uh, it's a, it's yeah. it's the Blue Moon uh, Harvest Pumpkin Ale. Uh, I purchased this this past weekend. I've had it before. It's a it's a pretty decent go to fall Halloween time beverage. But I did have another beer that I was hopefully gonna have during the show. But I drank it all, or actually, the mean the significant other drank it all. It is the Leinenkugel Pumpkin Beer. I forget exactly what it's called, but it tastes like you're drinking an alcoholic pumpkin pie. But it doesn't sound... It's not as sweet or as rich. It just has that pumpkin pie flavor to it, and it's absolutely delicious. Have you ever had a Leinenkugel before? Are you familiar with Leinenkugel? Or Leinenkugel? Yeah, yeah, I've had had, uh, their vanilla porter... Or was it Snowdrift Porter? I think it's called Snowdrift Porter. Um, I've had their Lemon Shanty. Um, and I've had uh, one other one that I can't remember. Uh, but every one that I've ever tried of theirs, I have enjoyed. Well, I do recommend the Pumpkin Lining Kugel. It's, it's, it's honestly, it's delicious. It's absolutely delicious. Well, the last pumpkin beer I had was last Halloween, on Halloween, and I had St. Arnold's Pumpkinator. I love Pumpkinator. Which was, which was definitely pumpkin-y. 
faux show. That's my favorite. And I've been trying to tell people or get people to buy me. Because they don't sell six packs of it. You have to get it in a... What are the bigger bottles? The pint bottles, I think. Oh, like they're, they're like liter, they're like liter bottles or whatever. Yeah, but I had one uh, last October or last December, so last Christmas when I was in town. We went to the St. Arnold's Brewery and they had Pumpkinator on tap, and it was like the vintage 2008 Pumpkinator. It, it was it was very interesting. I really don't know if time really lends well to the taste of pumpkin, <laughs> but. I never thought, you know, I think I'm going to save this piece of pumpkin pie for three Thanksgivings from now, and maybe, just maybe, it'll taste even more like pumpkin pie. I don't Sure, I don't like almost like trying to do the wedding cake thing, but with pumpkin pie and and beer. Just doesn't, you know what, that doesn't sound good. Well, I think, I, I mean, don't... wedding cakes, like, th- that works better, though, because it's mostly frosting and sugar that just freezes you know i gotta be honest now as far as i know the tradition is you're supposed to um do it on a one-year anniversary of you know of your wedding day so i guess you were one year anniversary um and jen and i did that and because it's a cake um it was a little stale but not terrible i just can't imagine though that pumpkin pie even after one year would good i don't know who knows for all we know that's what they do at the old mrs smith's factory there for thanksgiving and christmas they just keep them stock frozen and then just throw them in a box with a date on it you know to make you feel like you haven't bought something that's three years old from a deep freeze well i'm sure a one-year-old pumpkin pie still probably would taste better than a placenta pie Mm, i would imagine anything will taste better than that (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> one year old or not <laughs> hey, anyway come kids come in let, let's gather on the table you want to try a little bit of little maxwell's old home from five <laughs> years ago we've been saving it in the freezer right next to the wedding cake oh, it's that's, magical yeah. i'm glad that we've managed to devolve this conversation so quickly well that i know i mean i i think it's time. about time that the, the the extra special hole next to your anus is is I, I think it's been dormant for too long. If if you're if you're catching my drift, if you're my lingo is yeah, coming through. I'm catching your I'm catching your drift. I've had surgery to correct that. We're good. <laughs> for those of you who are not in the know, um, you'll have to go back to our previous Hollywood horror cast to hear all about the devil in my anus. Was it Satan proper? I don't even remember. It was Satan. It was Satan. And Satan is supposed to make an appearance every year. (laughs) I I have no idea what I'm supposed to do with this. So, Matthew, what what you must do, Matthias, is Uh sit back in your chair, release your buttocks, and think of Uh flowing thoughts. And then just maybe... Just maybe, if you're thinking hard enough, Satan will just slip right out. It'll be the most normal thing possible. Or you mean a little something like this. Hello, everyone. Hello, minions. You did it. Welcome, Satan. You're in 2016. How does it feel to be back? 
Well, I gotta tell you, um, it smells a little bit like, um, it smells a little bit like Matt's ass still, but, um, I'm hoping that, um, it will, it will, um, dissipate soon. So it sometimes, though, you, you know, being in hell for most of the time, uh, there's a lot of brimstone and everything, so you kind of become a connoisseur of things that, uh, smell bad, including placenta pie. Uh, I haven't had a good placenta pie in many, many, many moons. Like a blue moon, you might say. Oh, Satan. I look forward to this conversation every year. Uh, for you see, because with, with Matt, I, we, I can't speak freely in front of him like I can, uh, with, with you. If I remember correctly, you, you were the one who gave me the recipe for a, the pristine placenta pie, I think you called it. Now, uh, what were those ingredients again? I, I forget. I want to make sure I, I, I do it right this year. Well, it's, it's pretty simple, really. Um, you know, I, I've, I'm all about simplification this year. 2016's been very hectic, and, uh, you know, what with, you know, putting Donald Trump out there and, uh, putting Hillary Clinton out there and everything. That's a lot of work to keep these, because what people don't realize is that they're actually one and the same person. It's just that they are done in such ridiculous caricature that I have to possess them separately. You can imagine how hard that is when I have to do debates. But I, I digress. So I'm all about simplification this year. Simplification. So all you really need is a pre-made Pillsbury dough crust and just a placenta. Uh, preferably one from... Uh, a freshly deflowered virgin. So this has to be from the first kid. Beyond that, they're they're a little gamey, if you know what I mean. So we we want to uh, we want to have the freshest placenta possible. So preferably from a first from a first. No, no, it's totally fine though. If you have a bigger party to serve, if you want to do someone who's had you know twins or triplets or something like that, then you could do that. But just make sure that they were a virgin beforehand. Uh, Immediately before. So you you don't use um, any like thyme or 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 sugar or maybe a little bit of well, milk. I always milk use to thyme. I, I used I used thyme, but but uh, you know about nine months. But um, yes, yeah, I've been working on other on other things besides possessing Trump and Clinton and uh, working on all this from hell and Matt's ass all at the same time. Um, but you know, a devil's work is never done, as they say. Well, um, so I, I mean, who do you who do you think will win the the presidential election? While, while you're here, why not let's get political from Satan? Well, uh, naturally, uh, since since they're really both just me, I'm going to win. This is actually uh, how I managed to uh, uh, get myself all the way back into power. Uh, you know, Reagan was really big. Uh, in taking me away from the political power set, something about the religious right or something, I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, now, now I'm almost back in power. So I can safely say that it will be me, me. Uh, and don't believe all of those political uh, nut jobs and conspiracy theorists. Obama was never the devil. He was just the president. I will be taking over, though, fear not. I appreciate you coming in, coming onto the show uh, and and setting it straight. It's a little bit of a bummer that it was just a political statement, but at least you returned to give me 
the ingredients to your pristine placenta pie. And, and I do hope our favorite listener out there will take this and provide this to their families. And we can kind of make... This will be like the wait, SLS wait, 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 tradition. Wait, 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 wait. Beelzebub? Beelzebub listens to the show? Beelzebub. If you... You know, let me go ahead and talk to uh, my favorite listener, Beelzebub. Uh, Beelzebub, you, you must... You must come back to hell now. Um, I'm tired of you uh, playing with, uh, you know, the Fox Network. Um, they, their, their lineup is is fucked up enough now. So come on back and leave poor Fox Network alone. <laughs> Thank you, Satan. I, I think it's about time you mosey on up the uh, the shoot. Very, very good. And and do 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 me a favor and and make sure you tell Matt that he he, he might have a couple of polyps that need to be looked at. Um, <laughs> but anyways, th- thank you again and see you next year. See you later, Satan. <laughs> Satan, what? I told you, I don't do that anymore. He's not coming. I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, well, you're right. So, uh, some news of the weird. I believe you have some Halloween-themed news of the weird that you would like to share with us. Yes, yes, I do. Okay, now, this article in and of itself is from last year, but uh, I only stumbled across it just today and thought it was perfect for Halloween episode from iHorror.com, the letter I, horror.com, by way of John Squires. A 68-year-old grandma was arrested after killing and eating 14 people. Yes, grandmothers may have a funky smell, and sure, they can be pretty annoying sometimes, but it's safe to say that nobody really fears them. Old women are typically seen as being completely harmless, though 68-year-old Tamara uh, Samsonova may forever change the way you view them. As reported by the UK's Daily Star, the Russian grandmother was arrested for the murder of her 79-year-old friend, caught thanks to CCTV footage that showed her hauling the elderly woman's body parts around in a plastic bag. At a nearby pond, the rest of the woman's corpse was soon located. But that's only the beginning of the story, as a police raid of Samsonova's flat uncovered a series of diaries detailing upwards of 14 other murders. And the woman, already dubbed Granable Ector, by the media, didn't just kill her victims. She chopped them into pieces and even consumed them. Uh, It says here that the horrifying diaries recount the brutal murders of a man whose remains were found over a decade ago, and even Samsonova's own husband, who went missing back in 2005. At the time, nobody suspected the then 58-year-old woman was to blame for his disappearance. Quote, I killed my tenant, Volodya, cut him into pieces in the bathroom with a knife, put the pieces of his body in plastic bags, and threw them away. End quotes there. So, um, yeah, she said that she uh, knows that what she did was sick and twisted, but she's over that now and just wants to serve her time. At least that's what she was telling the judge. Uh, you should definitely check out this uh, article because while I may have read pretty much the whole article, you've got to check these pictures out, man. These pictures are fucking creepy as shit. So, um, what do you think there, Tim? What, you know, would this be the kind of grandma that you would want? 
I thought placenta pie would be frightening, but th- this this takes. Well, I was going to say this takes the cake, but this takes. Apparently, this takes the placenta pie. <laughs> this takes the placenta <laughs> pie indeed. I wonder how many times we can get away with saying placenta pie in this episode. Many. I, I'm pretty sure many. Uh, weird. What was her name again? Like she has a very creepy name, and it suits her well. Oh, let's see here. Hang on. I just... M- Madame Death? No, 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 no. Hang on, hang on. Madame... Tamara Samsonova. Samsonova. Yes. So, anyways, so that was the news of the weird. And then, of course, we have some... We, we got a little bit of email to check here right quick, if that's okay. Check in the email sack. Check in the email sack. Just don't serve your candy from that sack. That's the best part. Anyway. <laughs> so check that, the old email. Yeah, I want to know what you and your wife are going to do after the show. <laughs> the, which, of course, is the show at slscast.com. Once again, no email, but we do have one Twitter follower to mention. And, of course, if you would like to follow us uh, on Twitter, you may do so by following at the SLScast. And our follower... Tomorrow, Samsonova. It's tomorrow. <laughs> or Tamara or, Tam- I mean, or way, Tamara but, yeah uh, is First Order Kyle yes that is right at Kyle S. Prescott who is a comic book nerd Batman fanatic concert promoter for at First Order Productions and a manager for Ash of Eden um, and this wonderful Kyle has decided to follow us thank you so very much for that follow Sewer. Um, and of course, that's that there. So I guess now we have no choice but to get to the news. Am I right, sir? Alrighty. Okay, here we go, folks. It's the news. <laughs> Unhalloween news. Yes, we could be doing. Uh, no. <laughs> it's just true. All right, so HollywoodReporter.com by way of Boris Kitt, uh, and of course, I'm sure by the time everybody you know everybody's listening to this, I, I you will all have already known about it. This is not uh, because I think that it's discoverable, but I think it's important enough that we should weigh. In on it. Uh, Deadpool 2 loses director Tim Miller over creative differences. Yes! Tim Miller, who directed Deadpool and had a hand in giving Fox its biggest hit of the year, will not helm Deadpool 2. The filmmaker has parted ways with the studio over what insiders say are creative differences between him and Ryan Reynolds, the actor who plays the titular Marvel character. Deadpool made $786 million worldwide when it opened on Valentine's Day this year, launching a new franchise for the studio. The movie re-energized Reynolds' career, but also began a second act for Miller, a visual effects specialist who founded Blur Studio and made a name for himself making videos video game trailers, and opening credits. By all accounts, the pick's success was truly shared by Reynolds, who helped define the voice of the character for screenwriters Rhett Reese and Paul Wernick, as well as Miller. In fact, Miller is believed to be the one who leaked Deadpool test footage into the wilds of the internet, with the ensuing enthusiastic reaction being just what was needed to ensure that Fox, which was waffling over whether or not to make the movie, gave it the green light. 
Even before the film's following, the gang was back together plotting the follow-up. Deadpool 2 is in the casting stages and is in the middle of testing six actresses for the part of Domino, the project's new female lead. Uh, sources say that Reynolds and Miller had increasingly butted heads over certain creative issues, and Reynolds was a producer on the original, along with Simon Kinberg and Lauren Schuler Donner, but sources say his clout has increased exponentially on the sequel. Uh, Fox says The Parting of Ways is amicable and it is already jumping hand in hand with Miller into another project, Influx, the adaptation of a science fiction novel by Daniel, by Daniel, by Daniel Suarez. Uh, and that is the article there for you. But again, if you'd like to cover that and read it for yourself, please do so at HollywoodReporter.com. Um, so Tim, what are your thoughts on this? I, I, I got to be honest, I'm a little concerned, um, mainly because um, because I think that while, um, you know, Ryan Reynolds has definitely had a big, huge creative uh, say in Deadpool's character and everything, and but I think a lot of the movie's success was also a credit to Miller. And so it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, guys, you really need, you guys need to get over each other and work together because that's what made the movie work the first time. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, apparently Miller left because of like what you say, creative differences. Yeah. But apparently Miller wanted it to be more of a visual movie. And therefore, it would be more expensive. But Ryan Reynolds and I guess the writers were wanting to keep the same formula as the first one and keep it, I mean, not small, but relatively smaller when you compare it to the X-Men movies or the Avengers movies. So it sounds like Miller wanted to make Deadpool 2 bigger than, uh, than uh, or, or significantly bigger than the first movie. Because the first one was only made for $58 million dollars. And his version would have cost three times that. So, in some way, I can understand. I mean, Ryan Reynolds just wants to say true, and it was so much of an ex- uh, of a success due to Ryan Reynolds. Uh, the first one was, and so I, you know, I, I, th- I think it's fine. I mean, Ryan Reynolds is a big enough uh, proponent of these movies that if this is what they decide on, it'll still be okay. All right, fair enough, fair enough. Um, Then you go ahead, sir. What have you got for us? Take it away. From avclub.com, George Lucas will not be returning for Indiana Jones 5, written by Mike Vanderbilt. And that's right, there will be another Indiana Jones movie directed by Steven Spielberg. But this article says this, With the financial success of Star Wars, The Force Awakens, and for the most part, a pass from fans... The hot new Hollywood trend appears to be not asking George Lucas for any help. When asked by Collider whether the bearded one was coming on board for Indiana Jones 5, screenwriter David Kep replied, quote, He's not to my knowledge. I've had no contact with him, end quote. Lucas, the man who wrote and directed American Graffiti in Star Wars as well as helped bring industrial light and magic into the world, is also wildly regarded these days as the guy who ruined Star Wars Indiana Jones, in your childhood for good measure. Lucas was not involved at all with last December's The Force Awakens, and it would appear he's just fine leaving Jones behind as well. With the previous four indie adventures, Lucas would come up with the idea and act as producer, while Spielberg would direct. 
Cap, who previously penned Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, goes on to explain that the core of Indy 5 is the MacGuffin. Quote, I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull being set in 1957, there was a conscious desire to say... Much like two of the other ones were World War II movies set in the 30s and early 40s, this is 57, so a lot of our influences are going to be science fiction movies. I thought Stephen did a really good job with that. I, I don't know that the idea was most suited to an Indiana Jones movie, but that's what we did. We tried to be very careful with the selection of the MacGuffin and the eras to give ourselves as much latitude to make the best kind of Indiana Jones movie that we most want to see. For me, it was the MacGuffin dictates everything. End quote. I, so people give George Lucas a hard time, and I, I, I'll be the first to say that I found joy in episode one and especially episode three of the Star Wars prequel movies. Uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, when I saw it the first time, I enjoyed it. Because it was another Indiana Jones movie, and I really liked the 1950s serial adventure serial look and feel that they were wanting to do with it, and I thought it came across incredibly well. Though the execution, kind of like what Kep was saying, didn't really fit with either of the other with any of the other Indiana Jones movies. But I do appreciate how George Lucas was trying to do something different with every single one of his movies. He didn't want to make the same thing over and over again. He wanted to tell different stories about different characters or familiar characters and all of it just being fresh and with a, with a general theme as well. And I can appreciate that, even though that, uh, you know, a number, a number of his movies, especially like Red Tails that came out five, six years ago, was absolutely horrible. I do appreciate what he was trying to achieve. And in some way, what he did kind of sort of achieve if it wasn't completely successful. Um, Matt, what do you think about this? Do you think this is good? Do you think it doesn't really make any difference because really it, it's all because of the writing of the script? Well, I think, okay, I, I'm not going to harangue um, George Lucas quite as badly on Indiana Jones uh, and Crystal Skull. Um, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, because um, that movie had a lot of problems. Um, and while George Lucas might have been heavily involved in the story, um, he also had um, other people involved in the writing. He had other people involved in the producing aspect. He also had fucking Steven Spielberg there to direct and Harrison Ford. All of these things that had been, all of these forces that previously um had been able to uh work harmoniously together in producing a, a good film and um i i think that again it was it mostly has to do with the time period that it was set in and while i can appreciate that especially with how long it had been between the two movies it just i think there were still better ways to implement that and everything and um I don't think it had to go ancient aliens on it. I think it would have been just as well um, to have it be something else that was mystical, but you could tie it into the space race and stuff like that instead of going to ancient aliens and doing sci-fi in that regard. Um, 
So I think that they just, I think it was just a bad outing all the way around. Um, and it, and Spielberg couldn't save it. Harrison Ford couldn't save it. Um, it, it yeah. So I don't, I, I don't know that it's necessarily just a bad script. I think that everybody was just so excited to do something indie and they knew that the public would eat it up, at least on opening weekend, that, um, they felt they could get away with it. And I think they all paid the price for it ultimately. There you go. <laughs> all right. Well, then, this is the last piece of news from me. Uh, from Variety.com by way of Maureen Ryan. Jessica Jones hires all women directors for season two, showrunner says. Yes, all 13 episodes of the second season of Marvel's Jessica Jones will be directed by women, according to executive producer and showrunner Melissa Rosenberg. Rosenberg discussed the all-female directing roster during her panel at Transforming Hollywood 7, Diversifying Entertainment, a conference held at the University of Southern California's Annenberg School for Communication and Journalism. Uh, Rosenberg said that in the second season of the superhero show, she had wanted to increase the number of female directors, a goal that Marvel was completely on board with, she noted. Given how in demand many director, many women directors are these days, she and her fellow producers had set their sights on booking women first, she said, and contracting male directors later in the pre-production process. Uh, but then someone else involved in the productions, she didn't specify who, floated the idea of booking only women as directors. Rosenberg was honest about the fact that she hadn't contemplated that concept prior to that conversation, but she said she quickly jumped at the opportunity. Um, and I'm going to stop there because clearly they were uh, successful in this endeavor. And I would like for you to be able to read the quotes and everything for yourself. So please go to Variety.com and look up Jessica Jones hires all women directors for season two. And that again is from Maureen Ryan. Um, I think this is a really, really good move, especially since they I I really felt that while there were certain aspects of Jessica Jones that I felt was um, slower and not necessarily to the pace that we had come to ex uh, expect from Daredevil, it wasn't so much that it was a lack of quality. I think it was just trying to find a more solid storyline based around a female superhero, so to speak, um, because, you know, she's a freak, right? Because that, that they can't use mutants. Um, and yet... At the same time, I really enjoyed the aspect of seeing things from a woman's perspective, something that was carried on in Luke Cage, where you really got to see a truly um, unique black perspective of, of a series that took place in Harlem, uh, showcasing all of the the, the struggles uh, and that that these people face, um, the residents of Harlem face, that uh, the uh, unique cultural aspects and everything as well. And they did that well, I think, in Jessica Jones. I think that in terms of bad guy, um, what that's really what saved the series overall. Because while there was some fantastic stuff done from the perspective of women, um, David Tennant's performance kind of really held it all together. And so I'm really interested to see what a more truly female-dominated perspective of the series brings. I think it's something that uh, is a long time coming. And um, given what I have been reading recently, it, is that while there have been great strides made um, in bringing women to the fore, there, are still, um, there is still much, much work to do. So what do you think, Tim? Are you as excited about this news? Do you think that... that 
this will translate into um, better exposure. I don't want to say for the cause necessarily, but better exposure for women directors overall, uh, for women in Hollywood, and or will it just give better exposure to bring uh, more women directors to feature films because they will have such prominent um, name recognition due to doing big series like this that are going to hit Netflix? Yes. And no. that's my news! <laughs> no. <laughs> Well, I will say that I've never seen, I've not seen Jessica Jones, I haven't seen Luke Cage, but I've definitely seen Daredevil. I, I think it's cool. I mean, since Jessica Jones is a women-centric TV show, am I right at, in saying that? Yes. I think it's designed in such a way that anybody can watch it, but um, when you see like the way the conversation flows, when you see the perspective of the character of Jessica Jones, and when you see how the sex scenes work in the in this show, as opposed to what any guy has ever seen, you really begin to see the focus on women, and it's really cool. I I gotta say, um, it was really interesting to see uh, that spinoff and and that lens. Uh, and dynamic. Again, I, I also felt that there were some very slow aspects to the series, but um, I don't know. Maybe it's just trying to get it off the ground and everything. So, But I will say that um, a couple months ago, Ava DuVernay, she's doing a TV show called Queen Sugar, and she announced that they only hired female directors to, uh, to do her show as well. So this is definitely... Kind of in a very interesting trend because I do agree. I mean, even with like a show on uh, like a, like House of Cards, I think I, the only female director I can think of is Robin Wright. Is Robin Wright? Yeah, because she she's directed quite a few episodes, and I really don't think any other one female director has directed more than one uh, for that particular show. And I'm not I'm not too familiar with uh, Orange Is the New Black. Uh, so I don't know how many female directors work on that show either. Um, but, you know, I think it's great because I think when you're dealing with a a, a female-centric uh, um, uh, either TV show or movie or characters, it's it's important to bring that aspect. And, uh, and you know, as a lot of us know, that it's sometimes more pure or purer when it is a female, a lady, a woman behind the camera directing everything. So I think it's pretty cool. Right on, right on. Okay, well then, that really and truly is my news. So bring us home on the news, sir. All right, I'm going to do two pieces of news. I'm going to leave... I'm going to... Okay, I'm going to do the Freddy Krueger one first because it's interesting. And then I'm going to get into the the weird one. Um, So uh, there's this very interesting article... On FloridaToday.com, that is right, FloridaToday.com, dream interview with Freddy Krueger actor. This is written by Mike Nunez. Um, this came out on October 5th, and it's a, basically an interview between Mike Nunez and Robert Englund. And they have a really interesting conversation about shooting all the Freddy Krueger movies and how Robert Englund adjusted to being famous for the role of Freddy Krueger and not necessarily being street famous as in people recognize him more in the Freddy Krueger mask. Maybe not all people, but definitely I would think more people would recognize him in the Freddy Krueger makeup. But closer to the end of the article, he does give an interesting take 
on another Freddy Krueger movie. And this is the question that was asked to him, and this is his response. I found this very interesting. Uh, The question is, if you could have changed something about the character or the plot lines, what would it have been? And Robert England answers, I don't know if I would do anything different. We broke some rules with the second film and even addressed some bisexuality, which was groundbreaking, and I'm proud of that film. If I was in control of my own Nightmare on Elm Street movie, I have an idea I would like to see. I thought it would be great if the children of previous victims, or just kids who grew up hearing stories about Freddy Krueger, were each haunted by their own version of Freddy Krueger. Kids who grew up hearing stories about this Freddy Krueger guy and the awful things he did envisioned him in their own way. And that is the vision that begins to haunt them. Some people may picture him as a stout, another might envision him as a tall and thin, another with a different hat or a different sweater. He could have different gloves, or even a glove with small razor blades, as referred to in the first movie. It would be neat to see very different interpretations of Freddy Krueger based on the child's vision of who or what Freddy was to them. After all, each person's subconscious would picture him in a totally different way. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about that? Do you think that's a pretty neat, inventive, different way to reimagine a Freddy Krueger movie? Oh, yeah. I mean, and the really cool thing is that when you're talking about it, I thought of a title for it. You could call it The Nightmares of Elm Street. Ooh. Could be a cool Netflix show. The Nightmares on Elm Street. Okay, and then lastly, really quick, I know we're running a little bit late, but... Via the HollywoodReporter.com Oscars, raunchy sausage party to get serious awards push. That's right. Sausage party to get serious awards push. If you thought that Sony's sausage party, the no-holds-barred spoof of animated movies that took Hollywood by a storm in August, would rest on its critical and commercial laurels this award season, then you might be, well, a weenie. Earlier this year, Sausage Party, a comedy about a store full of grocery products confronting their own mortality, grossed $135 million worldwide on a $19 million budget, making it the most commercially successful R-rated animated film ever, uh, while earning an 83% critics' approval rating at RottenTomatoes.com. What a specific category they put themselves in with us. Um, and so the studio has decided to give it an all-out awards campaign, including, but not limited to, a push for a Best Animated Feature Oscar nomination, which only one R-rated film, 2015's Anomalisa, ever has received. The Academy's short films and feature animation branch, which determines the animated feature nominees, is generally described as a conservative bunch that gravitates toward old-fashioned animation and moralistic stories, but people close to the film feel that's selling them short. Quote, Academy members are way smarter and more forward-thinking than people realize. In quote, Sony Pictures' Tom Rothman tells The Hollywood Reporter, quote, they want to recognize bold, original, risky breakthroughs, and that's what Sausage Party is, however subversive. Plus, it's just plain cool. End all quotes there. Matt, what do you think about this? Do you want to see either Sausage Party grab the nomination or even win the best Oscar for animated short or animated feature? 
Um, good luck. <laughs> uh, I don't want them to. No, the movie is not deserving of an an Oscar. I think um, this is a movie that made its money based upon irreverence. That's like saying uh, that's like saying Beavis and Butthead Do America should have been considered for um, best animated feature simply because it made a bunch of money off of kids who wanted to go see something stupid and irreverent. That's all sausage party was. Um, it's the same, it's the same concept that doesn't make it a good movie. Making a lot of money, um, does not necessarily a good movie make. And that's not to knock people who want to go and see mindless entertainment or stuff just because it's edgy or just because it's stupid and irreverent and stuff like that. Of course not. That's entertaining to you. But that doesn't necessarily mean it's automatically Oscar caliber. That's ridiculous. Um, but Matt, it's the most commercially successful R-rated animated film ever while earning an 83% critics approval rating at RottenTomatoes.com. Uh, that's because the critics who liked the movie liked its irreverence. There was nothing, again, there was nothing groundbreaking in its production value. There was nothing groundbreaking in its storytelling. Or it comedy. just happened to, I mean, it just happened to be... Yeah, or groundbreaking in its comedy. It just happened to be something that was told in a funny way, which made it endearing and helped, you know, um, push whatever, you know, they were liking about it at the time. That doesn't necessarily mean it's Oscar worthy. Um, again, yeah, I, I, I find nothing of Oscar value in that film. And believe me, I laughed at some of the jokes too. I mean, let's see here. If we go back, let's take a look back. When, when did that come out? Sausage Party. August. What, August? August yeah. something. Yep. Sausage Party. Okay. So I gave it, uh, I let it eke out with a three. Um, there were some funny parts to it. You gave it a 1.75, clearly less than impressed. And again, it's because it's not that fantastic of a movie. Just because there are things that are funny about it, just because um, there's interesting aspects of the storytelling, doesn't mean that the whole movie is automatically Oscar-worthy. And if you go and compare that, I don't care how sick to death you are of any of the Disney or Pixar flicks. You go put... A scene, the best, funniest, most amazing scene you can think of from Sausage Party and put it up against the worst, absolute, god-awful, this is why Disney and Pixar shouldn't be nominated for Oscars anymore uh, scene from any of their movies. And I swear to you that Disney slash Pixar is still going to come out on top. So, um, and you will see why just because a movie makes money does not automatically mean it should be oscar contention worthy and that's my news awesome all right well now we go directly from the news to the return of a bonus segment yes woo <laughs> uh and that bonus segment of course is copycat throwdown it's it's the the copy copy cat cat throwdown throwdown that's right it's the copycat throwdown well that's right it's the copycat throwdown stop it stop it no no seriously stop it oh right like stop repeating stop repeating right oh okay i'm gonna kick your ass throwdown 
And this time on Copycat Throwdown, we are actually doing a Super Smackdown where we've got three movies vying for attention. We've got 1931's Dracula versus 1931's Spanish edition of Dracula versus Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. <laughs> I am Dracula. A moment ago, I stumbled upon a most amazing phenomenon. Something so incredible, I mistrust my own judgment. Look. Dracula. The very mention of the name brings to mind things so evil, so fantastic, so degrading. You wonder if it isn't all a dream, a nightmare. Rats. 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 Thousands. Millions of them. But no, this is no dream. This is Dracula. The original terrifying story of a maniac and a man who lived after death, lived on human blood, took the form of a vampire bat, and lured innocent girls to a fate truly worse than death. Dracula? Oh, what, what's he done to you today? Tell he, me. He came to me. He opened a thing in his arms, and he made me drink. Versus? Soy Dracula. No podía usted ser más oportuno. No sé lo que pasaría con el cochero, con mi equipaje. Con todas esas cosas, creí que me había equivocado de casa. Los muros de mi castillo están cuarteados. Abundan en él la sombra. Pero suba. Está usted en su casa. La eterna lucha por la vida. Todo ser viviente... Ha menester sangre para seguir viviendo. La araña teje la tela para coger la mosca incauta. La sangre es la vida, señor Reuter. Versus. Here occurred the frightening and shocking history of Prince Dracula and the woman he loved. I have crossed oceans of time to find you. Yeah. Dracula. There's a sinister, darker side to him. I find irresistible. I've never met any man with such a passion for life. He is unlike any man. What are you? Vampires do exist. This one we fight, this one we face. It can take on many forms. He is both young and old. He can appear as mist, as vapor, as the fog. And he can vanish at will. Oh, my love. The power of his evil desire has no end. You've got to go, dear. 
him. You got to love him. She is a willing recruit and devoted disciple. She is the devil's concubine. Join me in eternal life. Your salvation is his destruction. I want to see what you see. I want to love what you love. Take me away from all this death. <laughs> Make no mistake. He must be stopped. Choose your side. Fight! And for those of you who are unfamiliar, Dracula, the 1931 English version, of course, uh, is the movie that launched the the current edition or crop of Dracula myth, the mythos that we base kind of everything on with the whole cross and the garlic and, uh, and Bela Lugosi, right, and the whole count outfit with the cape and the medallion and stuff, right, and the slick back hair. So, um... That is what launched it off. Of course, at the same time, uh, even then, Hollywood understood that there were foreign markets involved. And so at night, um, after the day shift had gone home, they brought in a night crew. And in this particular instance, they was it was a Spanish crew. And so they were able to look at the dailies and go, okay, this worked great. We can see where this didn't work as well. And they were actually able to set up the, set up the shots in a way that was more advantageous, um, even given the fact that it was at night. So even though the movie was considered lost for a long time, and then I think somebody found it in like 1975 or something like that, so it ended up being restored. So now you get to see that and compare it to it. So you've got two of the same movie, but one is Spanish made and the other is the classic 1931 edition. And then, of course, uh, and this, of course, tells the story of poor Reinfeld, who is going to Dracula, Count Dracula's castle to arrange for him to get some land. And uh, things don't go so well for uh, Reinfeld or the people that Dracula meets when he gets to London. Uh, then we contrast that with Bram Stoker's Dracula from 1992. This one is actually a more of a romantic horror film, uh, where it bases it, where instead of it's just being about the mythos of Dracula in and of itself, this one actually stays a little closer and a little more truer to its source material and, and, and reinvigorates it with the romance element, uh, that is part of that story and mythos. And this one came from 1992, uh, and stars Gary Oldman, Winona Ryder, Anthony Hopkins, and Keanu Reeves. Now, having seen all of these again, and, uh, and, and, or I, I say again, see, having seen the Spanish edition of Dracula, 1931, um, man, did we really miss out. Um, this is just a vastly, vastly superior version of the original. And it's not to denigrate the original. I think that based on what they had going for them, it's kind of like if they had gotten to see the dailies and then they got to completely do reshoots of the movie, they probably would have done better as well. But they didn't. They just made the movie they were making. And quite frankly, I'm sure they were under the impression that, hey, we're the big shots here in Hollywood. We know what's what. 
And it worked. I mean, for the time, people were literally passing out when they watched Bella Lugosi on screen. They actually had to have nurses and hospital staff and ambulance staff ready to go because that's how scared people were when they first saw 1931's Dracula. So make no mistake, it's uh, they made a, they made a movie for the masses of the day. It's just that. There's so much better storytelling, and it's all camera work. Um, you can, uh, well, I'd say, I would say 80% camera work, 20% story and acting, because they got to see what was really working in the American version, in the English version, and then apply that, but uh, also bring up, bring everything up to speed and up to par, um, for certain ways of the camera work, for zoom ins and stuff, for the cinematography to really take advantage of it, especially in the lower lighting settings, because it's again filmed at night. And they are also able to kind of adjust the acting and the feel. Um, not to mention, there is a hugely, uh, a hugely sexual component that goes into the Spanish version that wasn't present in the English version. Now, of course, they would probably say that it was very sexy and racy for the day. But when you compare and contrast it to that one, oh my god, there's like no question. Then, of course, let's take a look at the, you know, jumping up to Bram Stoker. Uh, 92 version. Yeah, we got tits and blood all over the place. Um, but that was because this is Francis Ford Coppola and, you know, he's got his own vision for things and this was supposed to be, um, uh, it was supposed to contrast the lust and the raunch and the animalistic nature of it with the pure side of love that is even in that can be found at its base. Um, so, You've got even that pushing the envelope. So there are things that, uh, certain themes and elements that were very prescient amongst all three movies, given their audiences of the day. Um, but it, but for me, the winner is the Spanish edition of 1931 Dracula because there are definitely um, good aspects to both the English edition of Dracula um, and Bram Stoker's Dracula from 92. But um, where the English edition of Dracula had um, was able to kind of uh, use shock value and uh, never-before-seen ideas and effects and stuff, and established kind of a classic ideal for the monster film, if you will, or the horror film, it's outclassed by the Spanish edition. Conversely, the Spanish edition of 1931 Dracula um, against the 92 version of Bram Stoker really shows how it how important acting is. You have to have quality acting going on all the time. And I'm not the per I'm not going to be the first person to sit here and say that Keanu Reeves has the best British accent. But you got to remember where Keanu was at his at um at this point during his career. And really it was the accent that killed him. The 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 acting itself is a little wooden, but the character isn't terrible. Also, Gary Oldman is fan-fucking-tastic. Um, Anthony Hopkins, not his best performance, I grant you. But it's not that these actors and actresses are bad. It just seems to be, I don't know, maybe it's on Coppola's shoulders because the acting isn't all that great. Even still, there are some really amazing aspects to the storytelling, to the cinematography. The movie is not an utter failure. I just think that in its... 
aggressiveness, it ends up being more flash in the pan than substantive and or, or substantial, I guess. And I think that's what hurts it because there is just so much, uh, there's just a better class of acting, I find personally, from the Spanish edition of the 1931 Dracula that wins out overall. Um, there are definitely redeeming factors to Bram Stoker's Dracula and English Dracula, 1931 Dracula will always have uh, a place in cinematic history. But for me, uh, 1931 Spanish edition Dracula wins the day. What do you got there, Tim? Clearly not as iconic as Friday the 13th, Part 5, A New Beginning. No, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding. This, to me, this is what horror movies are all about. A good gothic horror slash love story. It's, it's absolutely wonderful. And I'm, I'm very much glad that we are covering these three Dracula movies because it definitely shows you how different they can be. Every Dracula movie is different from the other. Same thing kind of like with Frankenstein movies as well. Because the early black and white, nearly soundless horror movies, the Universal era horror movies, influenced like the Hammer horror movies, which are going to be covering one in a little bit with The Curse of Frankenstein. So these early films influenced these guys, who then turned around and influenced these other directors like Francis Ford Coppola, in 1992, who, when he was younger, grew up watching both the older black-and-white Bela Lugosi Dracula movie, but then he was also watching the Hammer horror films as well. So you have all of this really cool variety of this one story, and I think this right here, these three, really captures what makes the story of Dracula so compelling. Dracula was published in 1897. It was a play before really it was a movie. Dracula made his first appearance in a Hungarian silent film in 1921. It was called Dracula's Death. It didn't really follow the story of Bram Stoker's Dracula. It kind of did its own thing. And we really didn't see a direct interpretation of Bram Stoker's Dracula until some British folk decided to make a play about it, and they did. Eventually, that play came to Broadway. The original actor of Count Dracula did not want to reprise his role, so Bela Lugosi, the Hungarian stage actor and silent actor, he wasn't a film star by any means by that time, stepped in and became Dracula. He didn't speak a lick of English, they say that he said his lines, what is it, uh, is it phonetically, when basically somebody is feeding you the lines and he is saying one line at a time. Like I said, he, did, he didn't know English, so he had to speak his lines like that. And that's what gave his portrayal uh, of Dracula with his Hungarian accent and how his he had weird spacing with his words. It gave it that extra ear of creepiness, you know, it, it made him a little bit more daunting to listen to. So it was very interesting, and, and with that, I completely understand the obsession with Bela Lugosi as Dracula, because after he became Dracula, he unfortunately just got typecasted. He was always playing Dracula or Dracula-type characters and other horror characters. But whenever they decided to make 1931's Tom Browning's Dracula, 
Universal wanted Lon Chaney to be Dracula. And one of the reasons they wanted Lon Chaney to be Dracula is because Todd Browning, the film's director, directed some of Lon Chaney's early silent films. And so since he worked with him and knew how big of a star Lon Chaney was after uh, The Hunchback of Notre Dame and The Phantom of the Opera, of course Dracula would have been the next uh, best thing for him. Well, Lon Chaney fell out of the role for one reason or another, and they brought Bela Lugosi back in. And just, the movie just has this draw to it, and I haven't seen it in quite some time. Honestly, if you grew up watching this movie, and you haven't really seen it since, I think it's one of those movies that's best left... As a fond memory, because I went back and rewatched it. I bought the Blu-ray. It had the Blu-ray had both this version as well as the Spanish version on it, and I was bored to tears with Bela Lugosi's Dracula. It's incredibly slow. It felt like we were watching or you're watching a play taking place. It just didn't feel like a movie. Tom Browning, uh, I keep calling him Tom Browning. Todd Browning was a successful silent film director. He wasn't extremely comfortable with the use of sound because he did direct many of Lon Chaney's early silent films, and therefore this movie suffers because of that. The performances and the pacing is stiff, but the Spanish version is more loose and more interesting. Matt touched on fluidity in the camera movements. This one, there are a couple truck shots or pans some close-up shots, but it's used to get a like a reaction, you know, like it like a close-up of Dracula. They really don't utilize those particular shot particular shots all that well. Yeah, I understand this original Dracula. This is what we identify as a horror flick is due to this movie because of the costumes, the sets. Uh, the pacing, the gothic nature of it. And especially after this, nobody ever thought of Dracula as anything else other than Bela Lugosi's portrayal of Dracula. the His Hungarian accent and drinking blood and can't be in the sunlight and very semi-sexual. But then you look at the Spanish Dracula, and yes, the performer of Count Dracula, Carlos Villarreal's he doesn't have that as, that sex appeal, and he really doesn't have the same charm as Bela Lugosi. But with this specific movie, that's okay. Because Renfield and Dracula in Todd Browning's film were both a little bit more over the top. This is more of a central story. Very much like Coppola's movie was about love. This one, to me in some ways, kind of falls more into a suspense genre. And I really liked all the footage and all the scenes that were not included in the original film were included in this one. Like I mentioned before, the Spanish one opposed to the original stiffness, this one was more sensual and more loose. So this one is a little bit more dialogue-heavy. I think mainly more character-driven. And I really, really like the relationship between Count Dracula and Eva, who is actually the Mina Harker character, played by Lupita Tovar in this one. And I really liked how Renfield, played by Pablo Rubio, he was more toned down and not completely over the top. And again, all these more so toned down performances 
lends itself to the overall story quite nicely, or, or to this version of the film quite nicely, because to me, it feels more like a movie. It's a little bit sexier, it's a little bit racier. Uh, Lupita Tovar's costumes are a little bit more revealing. You see cleavage. There are moments when you completely see through her dress, and as she becomes more under the influence of Count Dracula, her cleavage becomes more so pronounced. So it's more of like a visual stimulation of you know, something is wrong with this woman. She wasn't as modest, though not completely modest for 1931. She is a lot less modest now under the clutches of Conde Dracula. So I really liked it. I liked how much more of a movie it felt like. It, to me, it makes that movie or this movie that much more enjoyable, more so than Bella Lugosi and Todd Browning's version. Now we come to Bram Stoker's Dracula, directed by Francis Ford Coppola. This is pretty much his follow-up to uh, the Godfather movies. Columbia Pictures came to him, asked him to make this movie, and Francis Ford Coppola said, I will do it for only one or two reasons, and one of those reasons was that he got to shoot this movie in the style of the time period that the film or that the book was written in. So in 1897, the, the uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula was published, and at that same time, it was the dawn of filmmaking, of movie making. And he thought, well, why not make this movie like that, like how they would have made it back in the silent era at the turn of the century? And that is exactly what they did, or, or he did. Francis Ford Coppola fired all of the studio's special effects recommendations and hired his young 20-some-odd-year-old son, Roman Coppola, to be not only the second unit director, but also as the creative uh, consultant for the special effects. Uh, and this movie is definitely a labor of love. I've it's hard It's hard for me right now to think of another movie that I can compare it to. It was made completely in a sound... Well, not completely, but it was made probably 95% of it in a sound studio and not on location. Uh, 95% of it was on the sound stage, and that's including the big horse chase at the end of the film in the blizzard heading up to Castle Dracula or whatever his castle was called. The effects that were used in the movie were in-camera effects. Hardly any optical effects were used, very much like that period. Only a handful of special effects are being used, and this movie was actually tagged as being one of the last big studio movies that doesn't completely or mostly rely on computer-generated effects, which is pretty amazing when you think about it. And this is 1992, especially. I mean, this is when special effects were becoming a, a much more of a thing in movies. Uh, I really liked how the sets in this movie were used as space and the costumes were basically the sets used to tell the story. He thought that space isolates the characters, and he wanted to create room for the detail to become more pronounced. Uh, it's incredibly, to me, textured filmmaking. Everything from the visual manifestation of the effects to even the Pathé camera that they used, the original silent film era Pathé camera that they used for a handful of the shots to create a really cool, eerie look to the film. Uh, a number of the shots were staged and shot in reverse to give it a very awkward feeling. It's just an incredibly cool movie. Again, a labor of love, if I've ever seen one, uh, when it comes to a modern film like this. 
but is this the best movie? I, you know, if I was comparing this to Todd Browning and Bela Lugosi's film, I would have said yes. But after watching and then rewatching the George Melford directed Dracula, that one to me takes the cake uh, because it's a classic. To me, it's a product. It's not just a product of its time, but it works incredibly well now. It's effective now. Uh, the acting is on par with a number of the other great films from that time. And it is suspenseful and romantic. But sometimes you have to really look for that romance, unlike Dracula or Bram Stoker's Dracula from 92, where it was more pronounced. And I think the love story comes out better than all the other Dracula movies combined. So I agree with Matt. I'm giving George Melford the win all around for this week's copycat throwdown or this rendition of copycat throwdown, I should say. Awesome. Awesome. All right. Well, then you got it. There you go. We both ultimately choose the 1931 Spanish edition of Dracula as the winner for this copycat throwdown. Next week, we are going to be bringing back a segment we haven't done for quite some time. Uh, we are going to do Ultimate Letdown. Yes. So Tim and I will pick a just a movie that we were really looking forward to for some reason that just, you know, totally bummed us out. Yay, November. And so without further ado, I believe that brings us to the movies, does it not, sir? Movie it up. All right, folks, here we go. It's... The Movies! Not since the cabinet of Dr. Caligari have critics been so enthusiastic. Never before have audiences been so terrified. Never again will you experience a tale of terror to compare with The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Here is a strange and fascinating motion picture that the London Observer compared with the ghastly elegance that often suggests Tennessee Williams in one of his more abnormal moods. A mature horror film that the Paris critics called worthy of the great horror classics of our time. Starring Pierre Brasseur as the depraved scientist who used beautiful women in the most frightening way imaginable. Alida Valley as the accomplice who procured the young girls he needed so desperately. Juliette Magnel as the innocent victim of a madman's perversity. The Horror Chamber of Dr. Faustus. Motion picture as fascinating as it is fantastic, as unusual as it is shocking, as frightening as anything you will ever see on a motion picture screen. All right, and this week's movies are 1944's The Uninvited, uh, The Curse of Frankenstein, the very first Hammer film, as they have become to be known for the horror, or Hammer Horror, rather, uh, the very first Hammer Horror film, as they became to be known, and Eyes Without a Face, um, a French film. Uh, so you definitely um, want to check out the French one uh, if you can. Where do you want to start first, sir? How about, what, what was your least favorite? Why don't we go with that? Uh, actually, my least favorite was Eyes Without a Face. Okay, let's go with that. Okay, Eyes Without a Face, 1960 French-Italian horror film. This is an adaptation of Jean Redon's novel. Uh, and 
This is a movie that uh, follows the story of Dr. Genesier, um, who is trying to help his daughter, who has a disfigured face from a car accident that he caused, uh, recover her face. And while she waits uh, to recover her face, she is put into a mask uh, that is reminiscent of a face that you can only see the eyes of. Um, and then, of course, it's the misadventures of doing this um, and its effect on this young this young daughter and the doc and the good doctor himself who turns out to be not so good <sighs> all right so this is a movie that is definitely uh very very creepy in its presentation uh, i think it's got a lot of great horror elements in terms of its cinematography uh in terms of the mask itself uh that gives you those again the the eyes without a face um but unfortunately that's more or less where the creepiness stops. Um, the, the bulk of the movie is kind of designed around the idea that this specter of the daughter is what is the impetus for everything. And in point of plot device uh, and initial development, sure it is. But the real horror is is what length her father is willing to go to. And that's what's kind of supposed to be so scary. Um, everything else is just kind of reactionary to the, um, to, to basically the fallout of this situation. And so what, what promises to be an amazing premise, uh, ultimately falls by the wayside in its, choice of writing. And I think it really comes down to the writing because um, the acting is pretty good overall, but it starts to kind of feel forced after about 20 minutes in. And um, he's got uh, this, this like his assistant, Louise, you know, um, she kind of fits uh, who she, she kind of fits like, um, the 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 kind of like this spurned love interest kind of thing um and yet at the same or unrequited love there we go not spurned but unrequited love and you kind of get the idea that you know it's almost a competition between who's more evil and then at the same time you're um you're you're left kind of wondering where his daughter uh Christiane is um, how, what kind of a part she's got in it. And again, there's, it's just kind of the writing that is really kind of wonky. And so once you get over the initial creepiness of looking at the, uh, looking at Christiane, who has, again, the mask that has the generic features of a face, but no definition. And so it's just these eyes behind a lifeless mask the movie really and truly starts to lose its luster. Um, it's still worth watching though. I think because you kind of get to see where a lot of, um, you get to see a lot of different kind of influences, um, not just in French and Italian horror overall, but you get to kind of see where, what they learned from say the 1931, um, Dracula's, uh, maybe even both of them. And also what they, 
are doing to try and moderate their storytelling because they were also trying to deal with censors and stuff. Uh, just like uh, in America, they were trying to do the same thing. And so they're, they're really, it's not about blood. It's not about gore. It's about the suspense of it. And then, so they're kind of left with only the plot device of this young lady who looks creepy, kind of whisting about. So I'm, I give this movie a three at the end of the day. Um, I liked it, but I think, um, I think there was, I, I just think there's a lot of wasted potential in it. So I would say check it out, but know that, um, beyond the creepiness of the young lady herself, um, it's more an exercise in what not to do with writing, um, than anything else. So three stars though, three stars. It's a likable movie. What do you got, sir? Uh, it's it's one of those movies where you hear you know the premise of it and you're like oh man that sounds horrible like the the story itself like oh man that I can't believe somebody can be put through all that and then Matt's review dot 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 it's a likable movie <laughs> I'm just picking on you director Franju Franju director Franju was I thought very good at keeping the violence and the horror just out of focus. So it really didn't run the risk of looking outright fake. You know, for example, when you actually see the girl's face with the mask off, it's never like a super clear uh, visual, nor is any of the, I guess, gore in the movie. It's also shot in black and white, which creates an aesthetic emotion opposed to repulse. So, you like the aesthetic feeling and look to it, but whenever you do see some of the, you know, I guess gore or some of the shock moments, you're not completely grossed out by it. And I think Fran Ju, the director, is a master at this because in the 19, I think, 49, he came out with a short subject documentary entitled Blood of the Beasts. It was the very first film he made, and... It's great because the film is basically about the uh, slaughterhouses in the in the country in the French countryside, and what he does is that he shows the fun countryside of France, where you have couples, you know, going on bike rides and eating picnics, enjoying the country air and the country sunshine, but. You know, the pam- the camera pans over to this little industrial town area and you go into it and there's all these men and all these nuns that are working in this slaughterhouse, just killing horses and skinning horses. And you see all of this happen. And at the- I couldn't imagine watching this at the time. And to me, this is optimal horror, horror at its finest. Because you're seeing a stark contrast of where you are comfortable or what makes you feel uh, comfortable, and then you fall into the uncomfortable. And it's it's excellently executed, and I think he incorporated that more gracefully and not as blatant in Eyes Without a Face. I think the girl character, uh, Edith Scobe, she plays Christian, is very poetic because... 
who slash what she is. You know, she's unable to express herself with her words uh, and she's not able to express herself with facial expression. So she's forced to move and act and communicate differently than everybody else. And the result is that effective, I think, soft poeticness. You know, she has like this very ballet look and feel to her. Franju, the director, was asked to make a horror film, and that's why he decided to make this movie, but he instead set out to make fantastic cinema, what he calls fantastic cinema, and I guess a lot of film scholars call it fantastic cinema. And what makes the film Cinema of the Fantastic is, according to Franju, the spectacle, the ambiguous sexuality between the father and the daughter, for example, because there is some ambiguous sexuality there, that is a part of the of the spectacle. That's a part of the fantastic. However, Franju doesn't like to be labeled. He didn't, at least when he was alive, didn't like to be labeled as the master of cinema of the fantastic. He would rather be known as, or for, his contributions to unusual cinema, which is cinema that captures the unusual moments in our everyday life. This is according to Frenju himself. Spectacle is an aspect of the fantastic. And Franju isn't interested by spectacle. He likes movies where the audience can dream for themselves. They're not just hand-spooned fantasy. And yeah, that's really all I have to say about this movie. I own this film on Criterion Blu-ray. It's a wonderful movie. Not only do you have this excellent film restored beautifully, but you also have that 23-minute documentary that I mentioned, Blood of the Beasts, restored in high definition as well. I, I think this is a brilliant movie, uh, though I do think it does have some pacing story and writing issues as well, but it doesn't cease to captivate me every time I watch it and just sweep me away. 4.5 out of 5, highly recommend it on my end. Very good. Where do you want to go from here, sir? What's your second favorite of the three? <laughs> All right, moving to 1944's The Uninvited, an American supernatural mystery romance, directed by Lewis Allen in his feature film debut. And it is based on a novel called Uneasy Freehold. The film stars Ray Milland, Gail Russell, Ruth Hussey, uh, or yeah, Hussey, <laughs> Donald Crisp, and Cornelia Otis Skinner. Now, what we have here is a movie that takes place uh, between a uh, brother and sister named uh, Rick and Pamela, and they fall in love with this Windward house. Um, and so they end up getting it for a steal and very quickly come to find out that the house itself is haunted. And much like uh, uh, Rebecca, right? Hitchcock, Hitchcock did Rebecca, didn't he? That was a Hitchcock yeah. movie? Yes, he did. Okay. Um, which is probably my favorite Hitchcock movie, by the way. Um, there is much more than meets the eye in regards to what exactly it is uh, haunting this house. And I think that's probably why I enjoyed this movie so much. Um, and, and please understand. Uh, let's see here. I'm going to double check with... Uh, and 
Let's see here. Yeah. Okay. So Rebecca, okay. Rebecca did actually come out in 1940. So that's kind of why I'm sitting here watching this movie, uh, from 1944 and going, man, this feels like, uh, Rebecca. And, but it's good in its own right. You've got, uh, uh, a young girl who's just desperately trying to understand what is going on with this house. It's, it's, you know, it's, it means so much to her, but at the same time, uh, she's the one who seems to be most affected by the house in terms of bad things happening to her, uh, via possession. Now, that's as far as I'm going to go into giving away the plot because I think the movie in and of itself is worth watching. But, um, and as I say, shenanigans ensue. The only issue that I really have with this movie is that you, and I don't know that it's, I don't want to say it's because, oh, it was a simpler time in movies or, or so. It, it's not a sophistication thing. I think that the way the movie was directed and I think the pacing of the movie in and of itself simply leads to you being able to tell what the ending is going to be. And it just hurts the movie when you can see it kind of coming a mile away. And again, um, I keep trying to, I keep coming back to comparing it to Rebecca. It's not like it's a cut rate, Rebecca. It's not that, um, it's copying it per se, but there just are an awful lot of similarities, I find. Um, but the acting is really good. I think that the cinematography is very, very well done for this movie, but you just, it's just too predictable, and I and I really feel it's a pacing thing. And I, and it's not that it's too fast. It's not that it's too slow. It's just that the way the beats of the movie fall in place, you can kind of see where it's going. And ultimately, in a in a movie that's a, that's supposed to be scary and thrilling, knowing what the ending is going to be kind of blows it for you. So um, I give this one three point seven five. I really felt that aside from it being predictable. Everything else was good, and I just think that um, it's. I think it's 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 a uh, showing in the direction. I and I really feel. And again, uh, Lewis Allen. Uh, this was his directorial debut, so maybe that's that's what it came down to. Um, it's a very good movie, though. Just predictable. Three point seven five out of five. What do you got there, Tim? Yeah, first off, the cinematography in this movie is wonderful. All that candlelight work was absolutely beautiful and haunting. Uh, and that's all thanks to cinematographer Charles Lang. He's actually been nominated for an Oscar for Best Cinematography about 19 different times. Uh, he won once in 1934 for A Farewell to Arms, but he did One-Eyed Jacks, Bob and Carol, Ted and Alice, Butterflies Are Free, How the West Was Won, Queen Bee, Sabrina even, but one that he was not nominated for, which I'm sure you've heard of, actually a couple, which I'm sure you've heard of, right, well, more than a couple, uh, but he did uh, Some Like It Hot, The Magnificent Seven, uh, and Charade which I love, the cinematography and charade. Um, so this guy knows his stuff, and this was an earlier movie of his, and I thought he just did an absolutely wonderful job. I thoroughly enjoyed The Uninvited, very much like how Martin Scorsese was captivated and frightened by this film back when he was a child. I remember watching this one for the first time many, 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 many 
many years ago, and I really didn't think anything of it until I heard that Criterion re-released this movie, I think in 2013 or something. So I've been putting it off for a while of watching it, and then I decided that, shit, I think this would make a great Halloween episode movie because of its spooky tone and of how well, for a haunted house movie, it is executed so well. The Uninvited is a very, I think, benign haunted house film with a tone that's smartly handled. What I consider tropey now in horror movies is that if somebody has like this negative experience and reaction to the house or with this haunted house in particular, a, a haunted house in particular, why do people keep exposing those particular people to that house? And this was one of the first notes I wrote down in my notebook. And I literally, once I finished writing that note, they fixed it and they worked around it completely. And how they worked around it, and the character that is afraid of this house is Lizzie, because this was her childhood home, and her mother was virtually killed in that house, or in around that house. And so she feels that she is being possessed by something when every time, or, or, or harassed by something every time she goes into that house. And how they work around it is that the guy... Uh, the the main the two main characters Roderick Fitzgerald and Pamela Fitzgerald played by Ray Milland and Ruth Hussey. Roderick Fitzgerald he he basically just comes out and says because he likes this uh, Lizzie girl, and he basically says you know like I I, I he I'm willing to destroy this house to make her to make you Lizzie feel comfortable you know so I can be with you so we can spend time together I don't want anything. Uh, to torment you like this. And I thought that was kind of cool because it, it, for one thing, it's definitely a character step as well as a story step. And what I really, really appreciate about this movie, like every other good horror films, is that this movie keeps moving forward. It never backtracks. It never steps to the side. Maybe a little bit at the end, but during its crucial moments in storytelling it doesn't do that it keeps moving up the characters progress you find out a little more about the story and a little bit a little bit more about the characters after enduring each scene and so i really enjoyed that and i thought this was a great way to forward the story and these characters when the guy is willing like you know i think this house is absolutely beautiful it it was it called to me to purchase it but if it bothers you i'd rather be with you type of deal the story, I thought, worked best because the core relationship is not about love, per se, nor that of underlying love. But to me, it's about family. Uh, the two, really, the two main characters are, you know, are, are not boyfriend-girlfriend. They're not fiancés. They're not husband and wife. But it's a brother and a sister. And it makes it that much more entertaining, the interplay between the two. I thought it was great pairing an excellently produced spooky tone. The only really knock against this movie is the happy-go-lucky vibe that reassures the audience that they're only watching a movie. And I think a lot of that is due to its time period. But it, it's not only like with the music, but it's like the quips between the characters, especially between Roderick Fitzgerald and Pamela Fitzgerald. Again, I think just to reassure the audience that you're here for entertainment. And that's okay to a point. And this movie just definitely skirts up uh, 
to that line or right right up against that line. Lastly, it's a well-acted and a smart script and beautiful to watch. Again, those candle shots. Like there, there's that shot where I, I forget the name of the maid. When the maid, uh, like everybody is outside or everybody is downstairs and they hear a scream and they go inside and the power's out of the house and they're like, oh, there's a scream. The, the maid is freaking out. And Roderick picks up this candle and He's moving the candle around up the staircase trying to find the maid. And in the pitch black, within the pitch black, it's revealed that the maid is cowering in fear in the corner of the stairwell. And it's absolutely wonderful because you don't know exactly what he's going to uncover with that candlelight. And it's just wonderfully done. And some of the best use of candlelight in a movie I have seen from the early 1940s. It was incredibly effective. I give this one a 4.25 out of 5. I was definitely surprised by this movie, and I, again, highly recommend this one as well. Alrighty, alrighty, that leaves us with... More than a hundred years ago, in a mountain village in Switzerland, lived a man whose strange experiments with the dead have since become a legend. A legend that is still told with horror the world over. We've only just started, just opened the door. But now's the time to go through that door and find what lies beyond it. But don't you see, Paul? We've discovered the source of life itself and we've used it to restore a creature that was dead. This is Frankenstein, who revolted against nature who experimented with the devil and was forever cursed. His unwilling collaborator was Paul Kremp. I can't prove you murdered, but I can stop you using his brain. Why, he has no further use for it? Don't be a Be careful! Go down it! Only two women ever entered this house of evil. Elizabeth, come back! Elizabeth, the lovely cousin who had promised to marry him, and Justine, the maid, who kept passionate and secret rendezvous with her master. Won't you understand you're in real danger? What Victor is doing is dangerous to everyone in the house. Now, you cannot possibly conceive what dreadful thing he's planning to do. What are you trying to tell me, Paul? That Victor's wicked? Insane? Wicked? Insane? Evil? Call Frankenstein what you will. A demon had made a man-made monster. And now... The monster was the master. Oh, what are you going to do? For your sake and to protect Elizabeth, I've so far kept silent. But now I shall go to the authorities and have them destroy that creature and see that you pay for these atrocities. No! Nineteen fifty seven's The Curse of Frankenstein. It's a British horror film by Hammer Film Productions and loosely based on uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, this is actually their first color horror film and the first in the Frankenstein series. Also, again, the first in what would become known as the Hammer Horror Films. And what this does uh, is establishes uh, in a frame narrative. 
the life of Victor Frankenstein, played by Peter Cushing, by the way. Uh, this film was directed by Terrence Fisher and stars Peter Cushing, Christopher Lee as the creature. Right, not the monster, not Adam, because that was his name in the book, but the creature. Uh, Hazel Court, Robert uh, Urquhart, I believe, or Urquhart, uh, Valerie Gaunt, Noel Hood, Melvin Hayes as the young Victor, and Paul Hardmuth. So we see just exactly a what happens when a very driven young man kind of goes off the deep end in research and someone who is willing to push the boundaries of anything uh, or of everything just to succeed. And while it is a horror movie in terms of the, you know, the creature and everything and being kind of a, a Frankenstein deal, it's really more about the horrors that, that, man is capable of inflicting upon themselves because of an, unquest an unquenched thirst for knowledge. And so it kind of balances these two ideas against each other. You know, where is the line? Um, is it wrong that someone wants to just, um, th that has good intentions, so to speak, but just doesn't know when to quit? Um, what, at what point is the all-consuming need bad, you know, bad? And, um, and so you kind of see this humanity that you, that inside of Victor, um, but he just doesn't know when to stop. It's contrasted against, um, Dr. Paul Kremp, uh, Krempy, Kremp, yeah, Kremp, um, who, initially works with him, but then just kind of, he can't take it anymore. And so, um, he ends up being Victor's foil as it were. I really enjoyed this movie quite a bit. And also Christopher Lee, I thought was, uh, really interesting as the creature. Um, what I, uh, what, and, and I, what I really liked most was just the way the story plays out. I think the acting is pretty spot on, a little shaky in parts. Um, and, but the acting is really spot on. And the only thing that I didn't like is something that just simply hasn't aged well. And that's this kind of frame narrative that it takes place. Uh, basically, um, he's it, the movie starts and Frankenstein's about to die. And so he's just recounting his life to a priest. Um, and so it just kind of that the, the framing device kind of seems cliched. And so, and of course there are things because of the, the things that became uh, tropes and the hammer horror, obviously very much established here. And those are also pretty darn cliched, but even, but even those notwithstanding, Solid acting and just a great story. And I, I gave me a whole newfound respect for Peter Cushing that, um, I had forgotten about because while I have seen most of the, um, hammer horror movies, I have never really sat down and studied them. They've always just been on in the background or my dad or my stepdad were watching them. And so I just kind of sit down and watch some of it or what have you. And so to really kind of see the kickoff of it um, gives me a whole new appreciation of it. So this one I give four stars. Not that big of a fan of the framing device. Um, and some cliches that haven't aged very well, but still solidly acted and just a really neat story overall. Four stars out of five 
What do you got there, Tim? Bring us home. Well, if you like this movie, keep in mind that Peter Cushing starred in one, two, three, four, five, five other Frankenstein sequels. So did he or did he not die? Probably not. <laughs> uh, I was actually sure. I, I, I thought I've seen this one, but I guess I have not. Um, this is definitely one of the more tamer Hammer films. I think this is because it's one of the very first ones. Uh, as the especially the Frankenstein movies come out, they get racier, they get more sexually charged. So you see more nudity and more blood, for example, and violence. Peter Cushing plays an incredibly unlikable Victor Frankenstein, which I thoroughly enjoy. There's really not many redeeming qualities about him. And that's what I really, really, really liked. Uh, Because by the end of this movie, he's just begging to be accepted by his friend. And I, I... really don't blame the guy for leaving <laughs> a friend an old friend of his to uh, to to basically to his death and i i think all that could be attested to peter cushing's portrayal he definitely felt like how the mad victor frankenstein should have been i think this movie is definitely entertaining it's it it definitely falls within the line of Hammer Horror's contribution to film as in a uh, more science fiction, more gothic horror opposed to all out stylized jumps and scares and frights that you saw in the 1940s and early 50s. So it's just something that's different and it's entertaining. I I like the science behind it. I, I was never a big fan of the lightning bolt that produced Frankenstein other than the very first original Frankenstein flick. So I kind of like the the color to this movie. It was a little bit more fun and and I think the some of the colors they used just made it feel a little bit more grotesque. And that's really all I have to say about it. Uh, it's entertaining. I give this one however 3.75 out of 5. And you and normally, as a side note, you can probably find uh, these Hammer Horror films on AMC or Turner Classic Movies. They usually show them during the weekend of Halloween. So this weekend, if you care to watch any of these, do check it out. Right on, right on. Okay, well, that concludes our Hollywood Horrorcast. <laughs> Next week, we are going to be back to our regular movie format. We're going to have Jack Reacher, Never Go Back, and The Accountant. And I believe without further ado, that brings us to the spiel, does it not, sir? Can uh, Can Satan come back out and do the spiel for us? <laughs> no. So, you're not going to you're not going to do your part of the spiel unless Satan comes out and does my part of the spiel. That's how it goes. Oh, <laughs> uh, well I guess we'll have to relax then and allow the cork to come uncorked here. <laughs> Spiel on! Well, thank you for having me come out again. Let's see, this this music that you've been listening to has been brought to the music partners of the SLS Cast. 
Cries of Solace. You can check them out at ReverbNation.com and Facebook.com, both slash Cries of Solace. Of course, this wonderful show that celebrates me once a year as is, as is proper is the SLS Cast. They're at SLScast.com and uh, they have a they have an email, I'm pretty sure. I think it's the show at SLScast.com and Twitter, uh, which is of course at the SLScast and uh, Matt, my anal host, as it were, he has a Twitter handle of at nitwit12345. And uh, apparently you have to go surfing on an internet highway or something to go and find Tim's Twitter. And the show, of course, is on a few different podcast directories like SoundCloud and iTunes and even Stitcher Radio. Um, and uh, uh, my buddy down here in hell, Bella Lugosi, he, he, he likes to say, I have never met a vampire personally, but I don't know what might happen tomorrow. So thanks again, everybody, and until next year, your soul is mine. Satan, did anybody tell you you kind of sound like a demonic Wilford Brimley? But take That's care- because I have... The diabetes. Take care, cinephiles, and we'll talk at you again next week. Thanks again for listening to the SLS Cast with your hosts, Matt and Tim. You can find us over at slscast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at the SLS Cast. You can send us an email to the show at slscast.com. And of course, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes and or favorite us on Stitcher Radio. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>